Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Thank you for joining us for another instalment in our debut spotlight series. This series shines the light on debut authors and puts their work firmly on your radar. Today we are so pleased to feature Kevin Jared Hussain with their international debut, Hungry Ghost. Kevin Jared Hussain is a Caribbean novelist and poet living in Trinidad and Tobago. In 2013, he wrote and illustrated his first book, Little Town Secrets, which was named the best children's book of 2013 by the Trinidad Guardian. In 2015, he was the Caribbean regional winner of the Commonwealth Short Story Prize for The King of Settlement 4, and in 2018, won the overall Commonwealth Short Story Prize for his story, Passage. His poem, The Wait is So, So Long, was adapted into a short film which was awarded a gold key at the New York-based Scholastic Art and Writing Awards. As if that wasn't enough, he is joining us today to discuss his debut international novel, Hungry Ghosts. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Oh, and thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so we know that today, particularly as it is publication day in the US, is quite a, a big day for you. And so you may have been quite busy over the past few weeks. <laughs> um, however, we were wondering if you had had the time to read anything lately. Yes, yeah, so I've been, well, the, the last book I've completed was Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow <gasps> by Gabrielle Zevin, you know. Um, I don't think she needs me to recommend the book because it's already so popular. <laughs> um, the book I'm reading right now, and I'm sort of taking my time with it because it's so different from his other work, is The Passenger by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I've read a lot of his catalogs, so this one is a, a bit different from you know from what he's usually written. I've got the the dual set is um, that and Stella Maris, but I'm taking my time with it. But that's what I'm reading right now. Amazing. Oh, I love play. I've heard I've heard a lot of people talking about Cormac McCarthy's new stuff and how it's uh, he, he's reaching a, a brand new audience with the stuff that he's writing at the minute. I think it's in, really interesting to see. First thing he's published in like over fifteen years. So mm. yeah, absolutely. And I haven't yeah. read any of his stuff yet, so <laughs> I need to sort that out. <laughs> yeah. So Kevin, as this is our debut spotlight series. Obviously, you are already a pretty accomplished writer, I would say, given all of the things I rattled off in my introduction. But what has the journey into having Hungry Ghosts published, you know, your debut international novel, which is incredible, by the way, for our listeners, absolutely get this one ordered. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's amazing. But Kevin, we'd love to know what your journey to having this published has been like. Sure. So, well, I've, so I've done... A few books already, mainly in the young adult, the young adult area, and mainly, well, all of them have been regionally, which is in the, in the Caribbean. So one of the, what I would say is one of the challenges of being based in the Caribbean, living in the Caribbean, is well, not so much recently, but back then, let's say like 2010s and so on, early 2010s, is that it's it's very hard to to break through to let's say, bigger, more international publishers. Because, you know, typically you'd need an agent to do that. And it was really only after, in, in 2018, 
after winning the Commonwealth Short Story Prize that, you know, I had three agents gunning for me and so I had my choice. <laughs> um, I'm very, very happy with the one I went with. And, you know, when I was writing this, I wasn't really writing it, thinking it would go to a big publisher. I actually thought it would be like a, to a, like a small press, which I'm, you, you know, which I'm accustomed to. So I was really, really shocked that you know, multiple publishers were, were buying for it. And it, it, it does basically how it went. There was a bit of serendipity though, because um, my US publisher, Echo, what, what was strange is that the editor there, one of the editors actually reached out to me on Facebook um, back in 2017, 2018 or so. And she just asked me if I had anything, like any manuscripts. I didn't, I didn't have any back then. <laughs> So, you know, I was like, oh, no, I need to write something really fast because, this, you know, they're going to forget me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> well, you know, when, when, we were, when we were pitching to, to um, North American publishers, um, I, I remember this, this, this Facebook message. So, I went, you know, I went and looked through all my history for it. And I was like, you know, send it to them and see. And we actually ended up going with them. So... Wow. Um, they were really, really passionate, yeah, with um, with Echo, and yes, yeah, so, I mean that's a is a bit of luck, really, that 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 happened. So it's, uh, I would say, uh, some of it felt like winning the lottery a little bit, but I've been <laughs> playing playing it for so long that I suppose it would eventually happen. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. that's amazing, and I love that <laughs> this message came through, and you were like, oh, I need to get something real yeah. quick. <laughs> <laughs> no that is amazing I, I, yeah but the fact that that's like oh I've got to get something written quick and then like you come out with a masterpiece like this Honestly. Like, what the heck? <laughs> I wish I could do <laughs> I know well it did take a while it happened all at once yeah. <laughs> didn't just sit and write it in an hour <laughs> oh god <laughs> um, so of the book I would love to just chat to you for a bit well I say a bit forever about it because <laughs> I'm just a little bit obsessed with how great this book is but firstly I wanted to touch on the absolutely brilliant cast of characters that you created to populate the wonderful world you created um can you tell us a bit more about how you developed and created all of the characters that make up this world sure so the the, the first character to, to actually make it into the book, uh, I would say that, that was first born, was, was Marley. And everyone else sprang forth from her. So if this is a tree, she's like the roots of the tree. Yeah. Um, yeah, even though she's probably just in like half of the book. And, but the, the general idea sprung forth from her. And it, it, it came from a, a story my, my grandfather told me. And he was saying, you know, when, when they were boys, when he was a small boy, maybe a teen, and he, there was this, there was this aristocratic woman that was walking through the village, and he tripped and fell and landed in some mud, and she, nobody wasn't sure exactly who she was, if she was like a politician's wife or governor's wife or something. Um, some boys laughed at her, and then she threatened to demolish the entire village, and some, you know, it, 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 I thought he was lying at first, but uh, you know, more research showed that something like that did happen. But the idea, like general idea, I thought would make for really good fiction. And at the time I was actually interviewing him, it was, it was actually for a non-fiction article. I didn't have fiction in my mind. 
And it's only, yeah, I guess really when I got that Facebook message, I was like, oh, no, no, what, what should I write? And I had to get through my notes. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try, try with this. So, yeah, it, it started with her. I wanted to write about this 1940s time. And because it was, I won't get too much into that yet, but it was a kind of dark, kind of special time for Trinidad. But I also wanted more modern ideals to come forth, like the more like kind of rebellion of youth. And that's when Krishna kind of took forth. So he has some of me and him and Lata as well. So they, they kind of project more modern ideas of, um, of youth and feminine, uh, feminism and, you know, so on. And there was also the fact that the village that I grew up in as a child, there was a squatter settlement next to it. And some of those people would have been descendants of um, uh, what we call barrack people, like those who would have grown up in that kind of situation, like in, like in almost unending poverty, like a cycle of it. And there was a way in which like the village would talk about them, not so much physically treat them, but the, you know, how they would talk about them, kind of invent stories. You know, as a, you know, as a child, they would go along with it, they wouldn't question it so much. Um, I did, I probably did when I was like 10, 11 years old. And I was reflecting back on that. And I was thinking, I would like to write about um, that situation and almost how it's Sisyphean it is to try and, and elevate or get out of, of that situation. So that's where that entire barrack scenario was formed. Other characters are actually based on real people here that might have existed around that time. Dalton is based on a on a Scottish um, kind of very, I don't want to say eccentric guy. He used to <laughs> live in a village called Chase Village, not too far from me. And he used to keep Nazi propaganda in his house. And he he was kind of half crazy and he wanted he wanted a village person to, to take over his um his his large mansion. And the twins' father is based on a on a very uh, vicious serial killer that existed at that time called Boise these things. So some of it is, is pulled on inspired by real people so that more and more characters got added to the cast. I try not to overpopulate it too much because I know it jumps around a bit, but yeah, so all, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of, you know, real with a little flourish of fiction in there. Wow. I mean, I normally, if there's um, a book with a large cast of characters, I panic a little bit because I'm like, oh, am I going to remember who's who and what's what? But the way that you created this world, it's the first time where I've not got lost in a cast of characters. I've felt like I know these people and I felt like really connected with them. And I didn't feel like anything was lost at any point. I just thought it was so well written. I mean, thank you, because you calmed my panic at the start by writing out the cast of <laughs> So I was like, well, that's there if I fail. So. <laughs> so you did just briefly touch on the people living in the in the barracks. Yeah. And that was one thing that I was particularly interested in in the book was your exploration of class. And obviously in the UK where we're from, it, we have a class system but I'm unfamiliar with what the class system is like in Trinidad and how that might manifest, I guess. So, you know, in your novel, it's clear that the people living in these barracks are well, they're considered to be lower class. And the barracks, for our listeners, I would say the barracks are a shared housing sort of situation. Is that right? 
Yeah, um, it's like it was attached to like a sugarcane estate where workers would be, but by then that has been long abandoned and just people were living in those kind of shacks, yeah. Right, okay. And, and it's clear that they're sort of a, a forgotten community and they're kind of, you know, looked down on by the, the society. But why was it important for you to center this story within this community? It was, it was important to me in a way because... Again, I, I, I was thinking back to myself when I used to hear stories about the, the squatters settlement and what we used to think about them without even knowing them. And I, I reflected on that a lot as, as I got older. And there were, there were some considerations that our government made to kind of what we'd say is regular, regularize their, their, their housing and, and things like that. But in terms of the class situation, there, there was something on elder told me like when I was interviewing them for the, the nonfiction article and uh, I don't know if it's okay if I could just go into like a, a, a little story here just to explain yeah, this, this situation <laughs> at the time when this was happening most of the schooling was provided by missionaries so let's say if you had to go into primary school um, you would have to be educated by Canadian missionaries or British missionaries or maybe even Dutch missionaries right so Basically, mostly Europeans or what, you know, what would be of the, the upper commonwealth, right? So that was your education. And at the same time, there was a double, double-edged sword in a way because you could get educated, but you had to change religion to, to join the school because they were missionaries. So they were, they, their goal was also to convert Hindus to, to Christians. They wanted to, to, to get more Christians into the game, right? You, you often had to follow those, those rituals and drop the ones that you had at home. And you would be part of a really good system like if, if you were to do that. If the alternative was that you get educated at home or by the community in what we would call like cow sheds, like out in the open, it would be like open air schooling. And it wouldn't be as nearly as much resources. So, so this was happening. And they uh, actually, a lot of the... The people I spoke to who would have been around at that time thought that was a good system. But at the same time, there was something else that happened here, which was you were you were sort of subtly think that to think that you know European was the better thing. The European education was better. By the time the those missionaries were actually pulling out of, of Trinidad and, and they were transferring power to, to the local Trinidadians because they had to train teachers here, they could remain here forever. So they had to train the local, uh, let's say, browns and blacks to, to teach, right? But then we came across another problem, which was none of the students or even like the villagers would respect those teachers because they were so accustomed to having um, teachers from, you know, the, those, those areas. So the teachers, the new teachers, the local ones now, kind of had to emulate the missionaries. So that emulate this kind of British attitude. So, and even the way they dress, so they would wear these um these blazers they would get these blazers and i guess rigid the kind of clothes and they would even speak like like the british so even though like the system was ending it was kind of like restarting but like from a different level and i thought that was really interesting because it was almost as if some of us became our own enemies so in order to gain respect um those local teachers there they would incessantly flog 
the, the, the children, like to get quick respect. Of course, long-term, that's terrible. Uh, but, you know, right away, you're going to get more, more fear than respect. But, you know, in the long-term, it's going to come up very bad. And that carried on for like a good while. And the time that Krishna is living true is kind of like the beginning of that time when he's in school. And I thought that was interesting because I wanted to write a story where if, if there are villains in the story, the villains were like contained within the community. Not really. There are no colonialists or anything in the story. There's no, um, there's no real British or, or Canadians in the story. So the, the villains that the people who look down on the community are from the village themselves. They are of the same skin color, ethnicity, most likely not the same religion. And they have like English anglicized names unlike you know, some of the, the members of the, the Hindu community. So I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write like something that was kind of like a, a ripple effect of a system like that. But not like so much as like white people beating around brown people. Like, it, you know, it's kind of tired to do that. But it's, it's interesting to see the, the way, the effect it had. So that, that, that was like what I wanted to do with it. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting to see like the intersection of religion and class in the book. And I think, you know, as you were saying, how much violence was happening in the community in your book I mean there was like a it was it was very violent <laughs> and um I think I I read that you described Trinidad in the 1940s as like the wild west somewhere I can't remember where I read that but did you describe it as that somewhere <laughs> yeah, yeah that was yeah. that was in the in the in the observer the guardian yeah. <laughs> um yeah it's like the the frontier the wild west the old west whatever you want to call it because it is almost like when the, I say when the missionaries and colonialists were pulling out, it was almost like a new country to be discovered or rediscovered or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's so much about this book that you can read it on a certain level and get pure enjoyment out of it just because it's a fantastic book. But there is so much working underneath it, particularly regarding the history and the culture around it. It's just a fascinating, fascinating read. And one of the parts of the book that I really enjoyed was the way that you write about nature and the ecology of, of Trinidad at the time. So much of the atmosphere of the novel is made up by the natural environment around them. So I was just wondering why it was important for you to include so much of nature in the narrative. I'm a biology teacher. So I've, I've oh, there you go. You don't have to I studied ecology in college, well, in, in university, but um, so I've always been like had an eye for looking out for those things. But um, but really, why why did I incorporate it in in, in here? Is that there's several reasons, but the ones that immediately come to mind is that I wanted that the country itself would be like a character, almost like a very uncaring character, because sometimes you would have these very terrible, violent things happening. And then you might just have like a grasshopper, like they're carrying home on the slide. <laughs> as if, okay, this is this is me too. This is what's happening. I also wanted everything to, to be envisioned. I could just write the emotions of the characters and somebody I was really, really thinking about setting. As, as I was going through it because, and which was actually pretty hard to write because I mean, that, that was 80 years ago or so. 
But there, there are some parts in Trinidad that's kind of like a time capsule. So you could you could sort of photograph it and you can you can imagine it how it would be at, at that time. It wouldn't be that much different. But there was something to be said about Natia and almost like I know, I know people people come they don't come may complain about the dogs, but like violence and almost reckless, reckless endangerment of animals as how uncaring nature could be. I said, not just to like the, the animals and the, the, the trees and the fauna and flora and so on around it, but to the humans there, because nature does play a big part of the family in the barracks, Krishna, Hans and Shrita, because they are exposed to nature all the time. Whereas like rain and wind might mean much to us. Like that is something that can actually destroy their very precarious living arrangements. Just a little rain could bring like rats and cockroaches in and cause malady and death. And I wanted a kind of self-awareness of how wild this world was that they were inhabiting. So that was, that was, that was passionate. And I, I said, I just wanted to, to paint an image of, of Trinidad back then. I guess for people who are not too familiar with Trinidad, because even when we were selling this um this book, like you were doing the auctions for it, a, a lot a lot of um people I spoke to, they knew of Trinidad, they knew the name, probably through Nick, Nicki Minaj's cousin or something. <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like a Caribbean destination, you know, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have the idea of like um, like this kind of dark history behind it. And not even much Trinidadians know about that. So I want I really, really wanted to paint that, not just for like people abroad, but actually people in Trinidad I was thinking about. Uh, yeah. I mean it's okay. it's yeah. so I, honestly, it's so so good. Like and there's a there's a moment where there's a few moments where they're in the barracks and the rain is coming down the walls inside. And just that meeting of the nature and, and life you know and how they're interceding each other it's just so good honestly yeah all the Sorry, honey, what you no no I, it's weird because I was going to say the exact same thing about, <laughs> about the way that weather was written and the way yeah. the, the way weather was written in a sort of emotional way mm. these big storm scenes were always present at the time when something really horrific was going on you know there was a big yeah explosive family argument and then the rain is coming down outside and the thunder's <laughs> cracking and it's just it was just really really powerful and totally like absorbing and 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 like almost cinematic I would say in the way that it's yeah. written yeah I just I, I don't think I've ever read anything quite like it in terms of the way the weather was written I mean it, I, I did say to you Lydia didn't I that it, it kind of reminded me in parts of When We Were Birds by Ayanna Lloyd Bamwo. Um, yeah. Definitely in the way that um, she wrote about weather and yeah. how like powerful that is. And there's a graveyard scene in her book where it's something really, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but it's a really powerful scene, but the storm makes it more powerful. And I definitely felt like that with your book. Now, obviously, we're rambling here about how good your writing is, um, <laughs> but there is so much like vivid and visceral imagery in there. And I'm just so curious, you know, where do you take inspiration from in terms of your style? So, in terms of in terms of style, I do write poetry. I don't publish it. <laughs> A lot of it is just meant for me, and I I think there's something in that that leaks 
into some of the prose. Sometimes I would I would I would plot plot out a scene and then I would think about if you're dreaming something. Sometimes you might dream something literally, but there might be like some things that are a bit strange. Like if you were to recall a dream, like you might be underwater or the, the sky might be a different color or something like that. And I, I was thinking like one example I like to give with this is that whenever uh, Krishna is going to visit Mali's house, like when they're going to sneak there. And I was thinking that that the, the route there is probably so unfamiliar and he's usually traversing it in the dark. And, you know, under such nervous circumstances that I would write this scene straight and then I would go back and I would look at it and I would think, well, what if, what if all of this was like underwater, in the underwater cave and it's filled with like uh, electric jellyfish and, and bioluminescent eels and corals, things like that. Like those things wouldn't be in the book. Right? But, but I would try to capture the mood as if he was swimming into it. And it, it might not, it would not come out literally like that, but I might write like his movements or, or maybe some sounds if maybe something is, is almost here in his muffle. And there's, there's a number of scenes that I would write it like that. Like when they're in the barrack, I often imagine what it would be like almost as if, what if my house was suddenly tilted 20 degrees to the right and I had to sleep you know, in a house. How would I feel? And I would go back and I would read it back with that in mind, kind of fit language in there to match that feeling. It wouldn't be literally tilted or anything like that. And yeah, sometimes I give myself weird prompts like that when I'm <laughs> in editing. And it does seem to bring out a, a kind of mood of what I'm trying to write. So it's not like I would write that all at once. In terms of, of this book, the language that is used is, I know it's probably going to be irritating for some people, like the, the, the words <laughs> that are there. <laughs> not, not just like the large English words, but like the, you know, the local Trinidadian patois as it does in there, what, what we call Creole English. And sometimes I just, when a scene is almost inscrutable or it, it, it has this kind of mystical feeling. I would kind of layer it with kind of ancient language to, to give it a kind of dark, kind of eldritch kind of feeling. But yeah, there's a lot of little things that I guess I like to do. I love that. I have said to Lydia before that when books are written with, what was the book that I'm thinking of? Like like more complex language, isn't it? It's like Yeah, more complex language. language, but also what you were just saying about, you know, certain things being written in like patois, like I think like, that yeah, just like dialect. It, yeah, it, it written, when things are written in dialect, like it I feel like it just adds to it. Mm -hmm. It just adds to the the feel of the book. Um and I just find that incredibly absorbing. Like I feel like I'm I'm there and I can hear these people and I can see the world around them. And, and yeah, I think that just makes the experience as a reader much more visceral. So I just absolutely love things like that. There was some words in there. I mean, you're incredibly intelligent and there were some words in there. I'm not gonna lie that I had to Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most I've had to Google words in a while, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. <laughs> but it was beautifully yeah, but what, written. What a great experience 
though because I found it it just kind of transcends the mundane when you're using this type of language it does transport you into kind of a different almost a different world with some of the language that was used which I found absolutely transporting I, I did I really loved it I think one of the things that I loved most about this novel particularly was how well you captured family trauma generational trauma would you call it about pain kind of being passed on from father to son from mother to to son and and how that kind of generational trauma kind of fed itself almost and it, it plays quite a key role in in many of the characters decisions and actions throughout the narrative was that always meant to be like a central theme or is it just something that I've completely made up for myself <laughs> no no no, no. It, it, it is a central theme um there a lot of the characters in the book seemingly make very drastic decisions very suddenly and as the book goes along I, tr I try not to make it like I'm feeding you the reasons why <laughs> but um like there's an entire as, as like entire generational kind of traumatic thing that that is influencing those those decisions and I don't want to spoil but like the, the decision that Hans makes like at first that might be like why and then you you get a, a, a little backstory with his with his mother and what could have happened, and maybe you could understand a bit, a bit more. Not, not to agree with it, but you could, you know, you could understand it. And there's stuff with with Mali where she's like, oh, ransom letters come, but she's not, she's not really willing to to do anything. She's just willing mm -hmm. to wait all the time, and then you get a little bit with her. And again, as I think she's a character, I'm interested to see what people would think of her. If they would love her, or hate her, because maybe both at once but the, um, she does have like this very survivalist attitude and very mysterious origins that that is probably not even her name and it is like I, I was thinking about these these decisions that they had to make almost immediately like the twins' father when he's you know when he's get he's on his ship and he's get and he's gonna get thrown overboard and he just kind of joins the bad guys and immediately becomes worse than all of them and it's almost a very short term kind of thinking but yes is influenced by not just the life that that character is leading but their parents lives or their grandparents lives as you know as we, we're going going along obviously that's a lot to capture in in one book yeah it's is is based on that and I again I, I I was thinking about like the kind of cycle of poverty not not just based on external situations like let's say a system keeping you down or anything like that but also like the pain that that you would carry in you to feel like you might not deserve any any better mm. or you almost as if you have to go along with this character that others have created for you so I almost see like a lot of the characters as being performative um, not really showing their true selves because like Hans, he he like kind of begs in a way for to stay in this, this store in the beginning or begs the schoolmaster to take Krishna back when it's shown that he's a bit more independent than that, but he has to perform that role. And Mali is probably her entire life as a performance. Mm -hmm. And now she doesn't have to perform anymore because there's no one to perform for and she's kind of suddenly lost. And she could probably finally have something that she really wants but she's so she's broken herself down so much and rebuilt herself that she doesn't know where the her original self 
began and where the new self um, ended and where the new self began, begins. So yeah, it's almost like the, about the performances that we have to do because of trauma. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Hannah, I need to know, Marley, yay or nay? No. No. Really? See, oh. uh, it's no. At the start, I... I loved um, What? <laughs> I loved her. I loved her. Of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> no, I, at the start, I really, I really empathised with her and then she just completely lost me especially there's a moment when she and I'm not going to give any spoilers but she tells a character to go home and I was just like I want to fight this woman <laughs> I want yeah, to fight she's, she's protecting what she's built no she's no it. she needs she's to go like she needs to go like <laughs> no Kevin if there's a sequel she needs to go <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah she's definitely one of them characters isn't she she's definitely yeah. divided opinion and it's great I love I love characters like that oh I had a really strong reaction to her <laughs> I can't say I can't say I agree with her at all I just enjoyed what she was doing I'm oh. like she's just trying to destroy everything <laughs> you love characters like that though I do no, get under my no. skin um I but I, I think I mean like the way that you write the complexities and the nuances of us as human beings is just so great and I really appreciated the looking back at how certain characters lives had been and how that might have influenced their decisions now I just really appreciated those moments and loved that you weren't just trying to create likable characters like we've said some of these uh really unlikable characters or one minute they're likable the next they're not they make stupid decisions they make silly choices they've got us throwing the book across the room because we're so angry with them <laughs> but like what draws you to write in you know the more complex side of us as people like what yeah what draws you to doing that I think I think I I, I don't think characters need to be likable of course there's an advantage to, to to making them like likable but like if I was if I was to think of them or try to make them like that I kind of I kind of put myself and the characters into a kind of trap where I'm really limiting their actions like there are certain themes that I, I wanted to explore with this and is is very complex themes that required complex characters that you're not even sure what's going on in their head and then they do actions and you're like why did you do this and then you, you kind of just left there be like but I liked you I why why are you doing this and I, I wanted to kind of give that feeling too because I would say a lot of the characters there I did initially write them to be pretty relatable and especially Hans and, and Mali and some of the other like like um like Shweta and perhaps Krishna, because I think a lot of people have been in some of the circumstances or like have been beaten down like that. And you you are following them on this journey. And then it's almost as if they have left your side and now they are doing their own thing. And <laughs> you become a bit frustrated with them. Like, why are you doing this? And it's almost like if you imagine them as a friend or someone that you're you're traveling with and like why are you doing this and then you're not forced to go through your entire like your, your mind or your thoughts on them and be like well they weren't what I thought they were and almost as if you're questioning yourself now and that is something that I find really interesting when I like if I were to watch a movie or, or read a book with a character like that and 
is almost like it's not only that you are following this character but now you it's almost also i say also for you to reflect upon your own self of why did you trust this character in the first place why did i like this character now and why do i suddenly dislike them or do i still like them <laughs> would i still go along with them but yeah i i i did i did think about like the kind of trap the ensnarement of likability when I was doing this but I knew that I they had to start off at least being likable yeah yeah um, so obviously the fact that these characters are so complex as you've said you know things can be influenced by the trauma they've experienced in their life and as you said earlier about the position in society might make them feel bitter in some way or it might inform how complex they are as people and but one other thing that I was really interested in, which I think informs some of the characters' choices and decisions are, you know, you mentioned quite a lot in the book, God, and there's a lot of religious references and references to spirituality and the devil and places being haunted by like a bad energy. But what significance does sort of the juxtaposition of religion versus spirituality have for you in the book? Sure. So with, 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 with Hinduism, slide backstory here the original title of this manuscript was devotion and um it it like that title kind of encompassed i guess multiple aspects of the book hannah kent came out with a book called devotion a few months ago so (laughs) (laughs) bad idea But uh, Hungry Ghost still still fits really, really well, though. Like, yeah, maybe a little bit. A, a bit better. But, um, but keeping the word devotion in mind, um, like uh, in Hinduism, you, you don't really worship anything. Like in Christianity, you would worship uh, like Jesus, the Lord, you know, worship God. And in, in Hinduism, you would more devote yourself like to, to an avatar or a deity. And typically when you do that, it is true some some kind of action which could last a day could last a week could last years and it could be as something as simple as like devoting some aspect of yourself like uh like you know it could be family it could be like cleaning the uh, like a little temple area that you have in your house it could be devoting yourself to keeping certain trees healthy even different things but it, it is supposed to be like something that revolves around your life that gives your life meaning right and so it's it's kind of based on making other things thrive not so much on like keeping adoration on let's say like a god and when i kept i'm not myself a hindu but i come from a hindu family and uh, i i kept this in mind when i was thinking about like ibarak and it's like the, the situation is so despondent that this is likely the way that you would survive in here, you would find some aspect, some positive aspect, no matter how small it is, whether it is, I say, whether it is like keeping the, the bed made up or making sure that you have ingredients for a certain meal or tending to like a, a little gardening with seasonings. And I, I was thinking of that and I was thinking that that, that is probably the, mind, the mindset that would be inhabited for, you know, for these um, barrack occupants. So, and then I was thinking of, um, that versus Christianity, because now you kind of have to give up that, you have to give up that notion now, at least publicly. Mm-hmm. And now you have to sing hymns and, and, and you know, worship the crucifix and you know, things like that. 
And I, I just I just thought it was interesting, like the notion of like devotion versus versus worship, because at a point, some of the characters, if you were to like think back on it, they kind of stopped devoting aspects of themselves to certain parts of their lives that they would, and they instead begin worshiping certain things, whether it be like wealth or power or popularity or the idea of like a more affluent life or something like that so that's like the religious overtones kind of play into that amazing I love that it's, it's such a fascinating aspect of of the book that and I also think that one of the and all the people listening well now I'm going to ask about this <laughs> um because I am a bit obsessed with death in books <laughs> um but one of those aspects was was definitely death and grief especially in the book we we see uh on the one hand um quite a few violent deaths and mm. and deaths of this isn't really much for a spoiler but of dogs as well and a lot of animals around them it's an all-encompassing kind of surrounding all of these characters is violent death in front of them some of the characters are dealing with their own grief throughout the the narrative as well I just wanted to ask really what what role these moments had had for you when writing the novel it's, it's, it's really to come back to the part where we were talking about nature and that is treated as a natural cyclical part of, of nature and also of the the end of phase is, is treated as you know cyclical and, and and natural and you you know you have reincarnation and things like that some of the characters in there have the hope of being born into uh, a better life, into the next life. And there was a part of the book that I moved around a bit. And it was it was a part that was like fish in the sea, birds, birds in the air, crickets in the night. Everything has its own place. And, you know, and hopefully in your next life, you will have take the place of that, something like that. And I, I was thinking of that. And that is just in religion on the whole, that is treated almost nonchalantly. Like there may be something better, there may be something worse, but it's treated as if this this is something that happens and it's something that must happen. And in the book, well, first of all, I own three dogs. So it wasn't easy, like writing about uh, violence against against animals. Just as it's not easy to write about violence against humans. And I said it, it was almost as if to come back to the nature part, as if the, the animal lives, the human lives, insect lives, all of these things were kind of lumped into one, not, not one given precedence over the other. And because when the first dog goes very early in the book, and it's kind of the first sign with Marley because she treats it almost with disdain, <laughs> with, no, um, with no remorse. And it's kind of like, oh, but I kind of like this character, but why is she, I like dogs, why is she like this? Why, like, why red, is she flag, red flag, red flag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is also there to show how desensitized a lot of the characters have become. And it, it's something I wanted to get across the, the violence, the animals and so on, because um, the, the people I interview and the elders I would interview, they were quite desensitized. Like a lot of things that that they were talking about, talk, like it was every day, like some things that 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 I was being told, and it, it, again, it's almost as if it was nature, and I wanted to 
write those scenes like that, as difficult as they are to, to write and, and to read. I, I kind of wanted that feeling to get across. I know it's not going to be for everybody, but I wouldn't change it. No, and I think they were really powerful, weren't they, Liz? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had a message off Lydia and she was like, I can't deal with any more dogs dying. Right, one more dog dies. <laughs> But but when you when you look at it as a whole, mm. it's right for this to happen. Yeah. And it is right for you to have a visceral reaction to it because mm. it would be weird if you were like, oh <laughs> okay. I think, <laughs> I think it it illustrates like how the, the violence exists within this community and how the dogs or the animals are seen as sort of like their property so it's like well they attack their property and it's attack on that an attack on that person without directly hurting that person but obviously it's mm-hmm. going to hurt that person so yeah I just had a completely visceral reaction to the dogs it's like not the dogs please <laughs> <laughs> but I think as Lydia said you know it was right for the story mm-hmm. yeah it it does provoke a, a powerful reaction And I think, you know, my next question is about masculinity. And I think, you know, there's definitely this this violence and the violence on animals that are written in the book or the violence against animals that are written in the book. I think masculinity definitely has a part to play within that. I felt it had an overbearing power on a lot of the younger male characters in the book. And you definitely see how that impacts them later on in life or how that might impact them later on in life through the older men in the book. I also noticed how much uh, masculinity influences the the marital relationships and the family dynamics as well. And I wanted to know, obviously, as we're women, it made me even more curious sort of how your own experiences with masculinity might have influenced the way you wrote the story and your own experience with masculinity influenced your writing in the story. And were you surprised by how much this theme came up for you? I did. I did want a story that would kind of like typically if you were to, let's say, read a story with these kind of themes from a Caribbean perspective, it, it would usually be centered around women. And it, I mean, that's, that's normal because a lot of writers here are women. And I wanted to do one that would sort of focus on, on, on men. I mean, they're, they're, of course, there's, there's both of them, but the, the kind of the, the, the fixed point, the pivot of it would be kind of like some of these the, the, the male characters in here. And with the younger male characters, Krishna, Tarak, and the twins, I wanted them to almost be like, they wish they were in a whole separate world than the other characters there, because they just wanted people to leave them alone. And they were, whereas they wanted, they formed their own community in a way, because the barrack itself was a community, but they were quite individualist, and they had their own ideas of, I guess, what strength would have meant. And then with Krishna, there were something, some aspects of his masculinity that probably couldn't be fulfilled because he, you know, he liked magazines and he liked popular mechanics in the magazine. And, and that would probably bode better for like say a, a child with resources, whereas mm-hmm. he just has like these pages that would kind of just provide enjoyment for him. And when it's shown, when they have a scuffle with the, the bullies from the, the village, most of what they do is insult their masculinity 
mm. and relationships to their mothers and things like that. It's, it is a mix of classism and, and hitting on their masculinity. Mm. And they just want people to leave them alone. And mm. the boys just want to, the other the bullies just want to beat them down and fight them. Now, for the older characters like Hans, he grew up with what I would say is like a warped sense of masculinity because his own father was terrible, mm. as you would see in like, like one of the, the opening sections, the flashbacks. And it's almost now he has nothing to, 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 to know what, what really is a man, what, like, who am I? How am I supposed to be? And as I said, I like to describe the characters as performative because he's taken all notions probably from things that he would have seen. And there are moments, very um, emotional moments that he would have, but they would be private and not really with his family. Like when his own daughter passes away and early in the book, well, before the events of the book, and he sees the child with the mother who's passed away in the hospital and he kind of hugs that child. And it's almost as if he feels like he has, and nobody's watching. So he feels like he has to play a different role for his wife where he can't even mention the name of the daughter and maybe something different comes out in him with Mali that we don't really get to see you just have you just get to imagine it but there's a sense in that smaller backstory here but it does not really include in the book but in the in the barracks right usually like a man like if, like if there's a man in the family and that man disappears or he was to die or he was to run away that would be very very bad news for his wife or his children, especially if he had daughters, because typically the role of the man was to protect those those women from other men in the barrack, because there might might have been single men there or men who committed atrocities that are just living there, and your family's unprotected, and they might be living right in the next room. So there was that rule that was kind of embedded, and that would have been there since indentorship. And there were like substantial amount of killings that would have gone on based on this protection of family or is, is almost like animals fighting over territory. Not to, disc- not to equate them to animals, but it's like that. Mm-hmm. And that, that was really like the rule of the man back then. And it's almost this territorial thing. And it's almost as if that is all that you were taught, that, that you knew. You didn't, you didn't know how to relate, let's say, more subtle emotions. And any trauma that you have gotten, you wouldn't pass that on. To, you, you wouldn't want to talk about it and let's say pass it on as if it were a disease to, um, to your young ones or, or your spouse. You wouldn't even want other people in the barrack hearing because it is so, everything is so cramped mm-hmm. that when you speak, other people might hear and uh, yeah, there's almost shame that was associated with that. And uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to explore with, with the male characters was why, why, is, why is there that shame? What is the result? What is the, the response to that shame? And what if there was a group of boys who wanted to abandon that notion altogether when they, they had their blood oath pack? And, but when they were doing that, it was almost as if they, were, they let themselves open to, to bullying and harassment and they didn't have a wider community to protect them mm-hmm. from that. So in terms of masculinity, that that's the kind of things I was trying to get through. Mm. 
how that plays in sort of the gender roles in the relationships in the book I found so interesting mm. and um the way you know masculinity and violence and all those sort of things are like intertwined and you know there was one moment with with Hans when he's um arguing with his wife's Shretta, Shretta. Yeah, Shretta. Yeah, um yeah. when Hans and Shretta are having this really explosive argument and he basically says to her like you know you're lucky that I'm letting you yeah. say these things I'm lucky that you're lucky that I'm not like hitting you you know like most men would do and she's just like she just completely shuts him down but that's all he's like he's not that kind of character but his first thought is if I was one of those other men like you wouldn't be saying those things to me and I just found those sort of comparisons and you know the contrast between these two types of men was so fascinating I loved it it was brilliant it really mm. was really was He's quite dominated by women in in the barrack, from Rupman to Ivan. He is almost as if he feels emasculated in a way, but Mm -hmm. because he's grown up with the idea that that he should be liked by everyone, and Mm -hmm. so that they would they would kind of I don't want to say bend to his will, but that there would be like harmony. And as soon Mm -hmm. he believes he's doing all the right things, as Mm -hmm. soon as if he's not getting the response that he wants, is almost like as if his idea of manhood is, is threatened. Mm, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Wow, I mean, this has been fascinating. And um, I've really, really enjoyed enjoyed chatting to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. We always like to end with just picking your brains for a little bit longer and put you under some pressure by asking you, are there any other debut authors or, or any novels that you've read recently that you'd like to share with us today? Sure, well, the one that we mentioned here when we were birds, um, Ayanna <laughs> so Wojmanow, who, yeah, yeah. who, who is another Trinidadian writer who's based in the UK right now. We've met a couple of times. I actually have an event with her when I'm coming to the UK. But oh, yeah, yeah, definitely read that one. Sorry, when is this event? <laughs> um, when are we coming? <laughs> <laughs> that, this, this is, I think it is the 22nd or 22nd. I'll post it on my Instagram. Amazing. It's, it's, it's in Brixton. Yeah, in Brixton. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be there for, I'll be in the UK for like a week or so doing promotion stuff. Amazing. So there's a few I'll, I'll post on my, you know, online <laughs> as I go. We're still finalizing a few things. But yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, check out when when we were birds. I do like Japanese literature. They're not necessarily debuts, but um, there's a very quiet emotional novel that deals with age and masculinity that is called The Sound of the Mountain by Yasunari Kawabata. It was written a, a, a while ago, but it's is a really nice novel. Um, another one that plays along those lines and actually is probably like fairly big influence on, on Hungry Ghosts is a, a novella by Yukio Mishima and it's called The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea. Oh, wow. Long title. title. Yeah, I love that yeah. title. <laughs> I love it. You can read it in two hours. Very, very, very good book. And Sisters by Daisy Johnson. Amazing. Yeah, very, oh, yeah. very good book. And those who like, like, if, if you've never read Cormac McCarthy, um, <laughs> you, can, you can always start with his I, I think his easiest novel which is The Road there's Amazing. a lot even very simple there's a lot to, to unpack there 
Um, I've never seen the movie, but the novel is is really really good. Oh, I'm loving this list. I'm, uh, I know I'm excited. What <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for all of these. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. This has been uh, amazing. We absolutely love this book. If that wasn't already clear, it's just so fantastic and epic. I mean, you've already had endorsements from some huge writers. You know, Bernadine Evaristo and Hilary Mantel, and yeah, it's just incredible. So. Yeah, I just can't wait to see how well I know this novel is going to do. So good luck with publication. Obviously, it's out in the US to, today, but um, it will be out in the UK listeners on the 16th of February, which is very exciting. So I will be popping a link to that in the show notes. And our listeners can follow you on Instagram. Uh, what, what is your um, Instagram handle? K Jared Hussein, J-A-R-E-D-H-O-S-E-I-N. Perfect. Amazing. So yeah, listeners, go give Kevin a follow so you can see all of the exciting events he's got to come, especially that one in Brixton with Ayanna Lloyd Bamwo, because I will be very jealous if I cannot make it to London for that (laughs) it sounds amazing but yes please go order the book and let us know what you think and if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to rate review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts and you can also give us a follow at a pair of bookends pod on Instagram or at pair of bookends on Twitter and TikTok but unfortunately that is all we've got time for today so Kevin thank you so much for joining us and goodbye (laughs) goodbye